Um, <clears throat> before I begin, I've got to uh, make a correction from something I said last week. It's been on my mind all week, and I wonder how many of you even caught it. Now, I realize after a service, you go home and have roast pastor, you know, for lunch sometimes, but I'm just wondering how many caught this. I was talking about, I was telling the story of Elijah, the whole story on Mount Carmel, and um, there were 850 prophets of Baal, and I got that right, and, um, you know, the, the ox on the thing, and they prayed to Baal, and they cut themselves in all sorts of contortions to get his attention. I got that right. And then Elijah came, and he put his ox on the altar and, and had water poured on it so it was drenched. I got that right. And they dug a trench to collect the water, and I got that right. And then he prayed, and fire came down from heaven, and I got that right. And it burned up the, the uh, altar and the, the ox and all the water around it, licked it all up, got that right. Then I said, and, <clears throat> and all 850 prophets were, were fired up too and to a crisp. And one guy after the second service came up to me and says, uh, well, that wasn't really quite true, Mark. Um, the, um, <clears throat> the people of Israel took them down to the brook and slew them. They didn't get burned up at the altar. And Tony, the plumber Zucker, good for him, he came to me and said, I don't think that was quite right, Mark. <laughs> so, um, you know, you've got to be the noble Brians, and you've got to see, now, is this true of what he said? So maybe some of you caught it too and thought, you know, yeah, he's getting old. We'll, we'll let it pass. But um, anyway, got that off my chest. Now we can go on to some more untruths this morning. No. <clears throat> things are... Things are, are moving so quickly in this world, are they not? Dizzying pace, the things that are happening. The geopolitical scene, and that seems to always be there with China and Russia and Iran and you know, the Middle East, uh, the, just the things that are happening, the uh, global economic uh, uh, issues that uh, we, we, we're so a part of and we're so impacted by, and the, the advancements, uh, advancements in science that are just, if, just a bit scary, kind of... Uh, bringing, uh, you know, 1984 to reality, um, the, the uh, artificial intelligence, the transhumanism, the things that are happening. And then right here in our own country, the incredible uh, moral slide that we are seeing at rapid pace. It, uh, House of Representatives passed the, uh, the, the uh, uh, Equality Act this week. Have you read that? I mean, we're talking about, it's scary. We're talking about the uh, religious freedom um, is going to be impacted by that. Um, Javier Becerra was just uh, uh, confirmed by the Senate in Health and Human Resources to head that up. Most pro-abortion guy you could ever put in there, radical. The unborn are in um, most danger they've ever been in with this guy at the helm. Um, elections have consequences, and the, just the movement of what's happening is, um, is a bit unnerving, and yet <clears throat> all those things are, though they're important, they're, they're small pieces, um, important as they are, but small pieces in an overarching plan of God that's being unfolded throughout the ages. In the, in the vast movements of God, and his plan, and his central plan of all the ages, these are just little pieces of it. God has a plan to redeem this world back to himself. 
Sin entered the world, you know, Genesis chapter 3. Everything became death and destruction, darkness. You, you look at the beginning of the Bible, God created a perfect world. You look at the end in the book of Revelation, we're back to perfection. And in between is this mess of sin and disease and death and destruction. And God has a plan to move us from the perfection of creation to the perfection of the new heaven and new earth. And it's the unfolding, incredible unfolding plan of, of redemption, of restoring all things back to himself. And that's what is being unfolded even right now. The unfolding plan of God for all of eternity. And central <clears throat> and that fulfilling of that plan is a little nation in the Middle East called Israel. Central to that plan is not the United States of America, it's not China, it's not Russia. It's a little nation, a little people of God called Israel. Romans chapter 11, I think, gives us a little bit of an understanding of how that nation factors in to God's overarching plan. So take your Bibles and turn with me again to Romans chapter 11. Last week we looked at verse uh, 1 through 10 where Paul asked and answered that very important question in verse 1, has God rejected his people? And his answer was, of course not, may it never be. Perish the thought. And he's telling us in those first 10 verses that God's rejection of Israel is only partial. It is not total. Well, today, as we start in verse 11, Paul builds on that and he tells us that God's rejection of Israel is just temporary and it's not permanent. Uh, Romans chapter 11, Paul offers these words of hope, I think, to the nation of Israel in verse 11 where he asks again an important question. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? And that word fall is a very important term. It has the idea of of total ruination, of total destruction. They did not stumble so as to be irrevocably ruined. And again he responds, may it never be. God forbid, perish the thought. Now let's keep reading. Last part of verse 11. But by their transgression, <clears throat> salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failures riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? I'm speaking to you, though, who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles and I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection is reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the, the root is holy, the branches are too. There's no doubt about it that Israel deserved the, the judgment of God. For centuries, they put their fist in the face of God. And of course, the the death knell seemingly for Israel was when they crucified their Messiah. Um, they stumbled for sure. They sent their Messiah to the cross. 
Paul is saying in these verses, but look what has come to the non-Jews. If their rejection, their transgression brought salvation to the Gentiles. If, verse 15, their rejection was reconciliation for the Gentiles. In other words, we have been on the receiving end as non-Jewish people of the incredible grace and mercy of God. Verse 15, he says, reconciliation has been brought to the Gentiles. That's an important term, to be reconciled. We have some New Testament passages like 2 Corinthians 5 that says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Reconciliation rendered um, people savable. Uh, Jesus paid for the sins of mankind. He went to the cross because of the rejection of the Jews. And he died for our sins, which meant that God now turns with favor. He can now save us not counting our trespasses against us. Early in Romans chapter 5, it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Or 1 John 2, he himself is the propitiation, that means the satisfaction for our sin. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The Jews rejected their Messiah. Jesus went to the cross and he died But in that death, he was making payment and atonement for our sin. We were reconciled, therefore, to God. What keeps sinners from a relationship with God? Well, it was our sin. A great chasm, a great gulf was between a holy God and and sinful man, that gulf of sin. But Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago. He paid for the sin. We are now rendered savable. We were now reconciled to God. That which was separating us has been paid for by the blood of Christ. Now, it's a free gift that has to be received by faith. But we are rendered savable because of what Jesus did on the cross. And Jesus went on the cross because the Jewish people rejected him. So again, verse 11, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Verse 15, for if their rejection is reconciliation of the world, we are on the receiving end of tremendous spiritual benefits because the Jews rejected Jesus. Now to receive that free gift, we have to put our trust in Jesus as our Savior, that he indeed did that work of reconciliation on the cross, that our sins are paid for, that he died and rose again, and when we receive that free gift by faith, it becomes ours. But until Jesus went to the cross, that was an impossibility. Jesus went to the cross because the Jews rejected him. So we're talking about riches to the Gentiles, I mean, folks, we are on the receiving end of incredible blessings because the Jews rejected their Messiah. But what would happen if they turned back to God? 
if they received Jesus as their Messiah, if their failure brought riches to us, what would happen if they accepted Jesus? Well, Paul hints at that possibility in the last part of verse 15. <clears throat> what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That's dramatic. Life from the dead. I think it's hinted a little bit back in chapter 8, the chapter we had looked at a number of weeks ago. In chapter 8, when it talks about the all of creation, verse 20, is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that, verse 21, creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says in verse 23, and not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. We are living in times of, of darkness and death. That is what sin has done to God's once perfect and beautiful creation. What Paul is saying, what would happen if the Jewish people accepted Jesus? It would mean life from the dead. This world, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, has never known life apart from Jesus, a personal relationship. But if the Jews accepted their Messiah, it would mean life from the dead, all of creation. Paul continues this line of reasoning in verse 16 when he says, and he gives these two analogies, that the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and that the root is holy, the branches are too. And he's taking us back to the, I think, the beginning of, of, of Israel, the ragtag bunch of slaves out of Egypt that God redeemed and said, you are my chosen people, you are my special people. He said, if the first piece of dough is holy, that is not morally holy, he's talking about being separate for a particular, separated for a particular a calling, separated unto God for his use, holy, separated. And if he separated this this little band of, of slaves out of Egypt and call them to himself, if that first piece of dough is, is separate for holiness, the, the whole lump is down through the, the centuries of time. That's the way Paul said in verse 1, again in chapter 11, has God rejected his people? Not those who were at one point, but currently his people. And he says if the, if the root is separate unto holiness... <clears throat> Well, then the branches are as well. What Paul is suggesting here is, even though you look out over the, the, the situation of Israel and only a, a remnant, only a few people seem to be in tune with God, that doesn't mean that that whole lump of dough or those, those branches are still not separate unto him for his purpose. Has God rejected his people? May it never be. Have they stumbled so as to fall and be ruined totally? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, they're still separate unto God. 
But now Paul has to give a warning to we Gentiles. Verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, it's the root that supports you. And you will say, verse 19, well, the branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, quite right, verse 20. They were broken off for their unbelief. And you stand by your faith, but do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he'll not spare you Gentiles either. Behold, look, then at the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell, the severity of God. But to you, God's kindness if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, will be lopped off. Now, we need some clarity on some of these phrases. Um, natural branches that were cut off. Who are they? The wild branches that were grafted in. The, what, what is the rich root of the olive tree? And I think it's pretty obvious, the natural branches. He's talking about the Jewish people the wild branches that were grafted in, well, that would be us, Gentiles, non-Jews. Um, what's the rich root uh, of, this, of this olive tree? And I want to suggest this morning that that rich root is something that's called the, the Abrahamic covenant. See, you go back to the very beginnings of God's plan. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is a mess. It's death and destruction. It's it's the result of the fall. And then all of a sudden, the Bible comes to a, a really slow, slow screeching halt. And chapter 12 of Genesis is a promise to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God is promising Abram that from him will come a, uh, a nation, a great nation, through whom will come blessing to the world. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. That nation that came from Abram in the plan of God, the, this grand overarching plan of God, was this little group of people called the Jews, the nation of Israel that God had raised up and he set his affections upon them and, and called them as his special possession. He was their God. They were his people. And through whom, the Jewish people, he was going to bring blessing to the entire world. They were to be lights to the other world, pointing people to the greatness of Jehovah Yahweh God. Uh, it didn't work out that way, and God, of course, had predetermined this, and the Jews fought God and fought God and fought God, but they became the conduit of the blessings of the Messiah, the, the birth of Christ. Angel told Joseph, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him Jesus, because he's going to save his people from their sins. He's going to be a light unto the Gentiles. 2,000 years ago, that Messiah was born. It's all tied into the the promise that God made to Abraham. The, the root of all of this plan and program of, of God is that the, that 
that rich root to the covenantal promises God made with Abraham. God is promising he has a plan that he's going to unfold that will bring ultimate blessing to the world. Um, but the nation of Israel, <clears throat> they failed. John tells us he came to his own and his own received him not. They spurned God's grace to them. They rejected God's plan. And that opened the door to the blessings to the world. When the Jews rejected Jesus the Messiah and he went to the cross, it opened the door of rich blessings to every non-Jew. We are now rendered savable through faith in Christ. That whoever receives the free gift has a relationship with God for all of eternity. And so we've got this picture of, of non-Jews being grafted into this rich root of these Abrahamic promises. Let me give you a couple of verses that I think might help. Gen Galatians chapter 3 says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer, connected to this rich root of these promises that God made with Abraham. He goes on and says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's the crucifixion, the cross. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the non-Jews, Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then he concludes chapter 3 with these words, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are uh, descendants of Abraham, and you are heirs according to the promise. You have been grafted into the rich root of those promises with Abraham. Let me see if I can illustrate this. I, I think it's a, it's a difficult passage in, in many ways. But let me see if these somewhat poorly made graphs or, or uh, illustrations um, will make some sense to you. The nation of Israel came from that rich root of the Abrahamic covenant. They are the special chosen people. I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abraham, through whom all the world will find blessing. They are the special covenantal people through whom the Messiah was going to bless the, the world, to restore this world back to its place of perfection, the way God intended it. But they rejected the Messiah. And our passage in Romans 11 said uh, he cut them off. Uh, they didn't believe God. In fact, only a small remnant through the centuries were faithful to God. And so God's judgment fell. They rejected their Messiah. 
They crucified him, and God lopped them off. Unbelieving Israel was lopped off. But because of their rejection, what Paul is saying is that we non-Jews, Gentiles, have been brought in, have been grafted in to that rich root, those promises, that overarching plan of God to, to restore this fallen mess of a world back to himself. He grafted in the wild branches, the, the Gentiles, who through faith in Jesus Christ can now partake of those rich blessings, the rich fruit, he says in Romans 11, of the Abrahamic covenant. We are grafted in. And he says in other passages, a whole new entity has been developed. It's called the church, the body of Christ. We have been brought into a relationship with God, and he, he calls us a, a new man, a new entity. Now, what does that look like? And I'm going to bring this up because we saw this a few weeks ago. Here you have ethnic Israel. These were God's chosen people. But in Romans chapter 9, Paul is reminding us not all of Israel are of Israel. There is a spiritual Israel. There is a believing remnant of Israel. That believing remnant, he says, is brought over into this new entity that is called the church, the body of Christ, where there is now neither Jew nor Greek or slave or free or male and female. We're all one in Christ. Being part of the body of Christ is not based on an ethnic identity. And so all Jews who have put their trust in Jesus as Messiah, that remnant that Paul has talked about, is part of the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And of course the question is, well, if you've got a new entity, the church of Jesus Christ with Jew and non-Jew and we're all one big happy family, then why mess with Israel again? Isn't God's program with Israel finished? God has not rejected his people. They have not stumbled so as to fall. So we have the word of warning again there in verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in as a non-Jew, as a Gentile. You're right, verse 20, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith, but don't be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Look at the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity. To you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be lopped off. 2,000 years ago, the door was open for all non-Jews to have a relationship with God. We were rendered savable. We were reconciled to God because Jesus, having been rejected by the Jews, went to the cross, paid for our sins. He is our satisfaction before a holy God, and not for ours only, but for that of the whole world. It will not be our sin that keeps us out of heaven. It'll be our lack of faith of not trusting Jesus as a personal Savior. But what about Israel? Does national ethnic Israel have a future in God's program then? And so <clears throat> Paul is saying, at least he's insinuating the potential of Israel's restoration. Look at verse 23 and 24 of the text. And they also, 
if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in again. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to the nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Their own olive tree. And all we're seeing right now is Paul is saying there is the potential. And he says it makes perfectly good sense that this is potential. That natural branches could be grafted back into this whole plan of God and experience the blessings of God and the fulfillment of all those promises from the rich root of the Abrahamic promises. He says God is able to do that. If they discontinue their unbelief and put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. Is this a possibility? God is able to do this. He's able to take the Israelites, the, the Jews, and bring them back in. Is that going to happen? Will he do it? Well, we'll consider that next week as Paul continues, and you can read ahead. You know the answer. All right. Clear as mud? Mist in the pulpit, fog in the pew? Paul is simply saying, as non-Jews, we have been blessed to be grafted in to what was God's plan from the Abrahamic promises for this national entity called Israel. It is their olive tree. The grand movements and epics of time and God's plan to redeem this world back to himself centered in this promise to the Jewish people, the Abrahamic promise. But, but they rejected it. God lopped them off. He grafted in us. We now become the recipients of these blessings. We become part of the, the rich root of these promises by faith. We are descendants of Abraham by faith and part of God's grand plan for his creation to redeem it and restore it back. But he has not completely rejected his people. They did not stumble so as to fall. Yes, they were lopped off, but God is able to graft them back in again if they stop their unbelief. Let me share with you some things as by way of application I think are important for us to consider regarding this passage. What does this passage teach us about God? We always have to go there. What, is, what do we learn about God from this passage? And you can't miss it. It's verse 22. It, Paul is telling us, behold. Some of your translations say, um, um, look or, or take note. It's a it's kind of a sap, slap in the face kind of wake-up thing. Hey, look, hey, wake up, look. You want to know about God? Behold the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness of God that he offers eternal salvation freely based on simply the work of Jesus on the cross. It's, it's a free gift. Look at the kindness of God. 
Folks, do you realize where we would be? I, I mean, I don't even, you can't even, I don't know if you can even think it through. It's one of these hypothetical situations that you, you, you can't necessarily extrapolate any conclusion from, but I wonder where we would be if Israel had accepted their Messiah. They received him on that Palm Sunday, as we'll see next week. And he presented himself to them, and they, they turned in repentance, and the religious leaders bowed before him. Our Lord, our Savior. Where would we be? I'm not sure. All I know is the text has told us time and time again in the, in the Bible, their rejection has brought salvation to us. We got grafted in because they got lopped off. Look at the kindness of God. The only reason why we're ever going to get to heaven, the only reason why any of us have a relationship with God is because he was kind to us. And his son paid for our sins and offers a free gift to anyone who will receive it by faith. But look, behold, the severity of God. To those who fell, severity. To those who in unbelief reject, there's certain and sure eternal judgment. I mentioned it last week. God is undaunted in faithfulness. He's uncompromising in holiness. He offers the free gift of eternal life, but if it's turned down, if it's not accepted, the Bible says that we will die in our sin and be eternally separated from God. And you can't blame God for that. Free gift is offered. You're here today. I'm hoping that you have already received that free gift of eternal life. Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins. It's, it, it's for you. You've been reconciled to God. Your sins have been forgiven. They're, they're free, free and clear. Here's the offer of eternal life. Jesus did all the work. Do you believe it? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him, he's not asking you to work for it, do anything for it. He's actually just asking you to receive it like any gift freely. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you? And when you transfer your trust and your faith off of yourself and your religiosity and all the good works that you think you will impress God, in that moment of transference of your faith, you become a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. You become a child of God, a part of his forever family. That is nothing but sheer kindness of God. And if you reject it, behold the severity of God. Eternal separation. I think this passage teaches us something, though, about ourselves. A couple things I want to mention here. I've just kind of alluded to it. We need to be incredibly grateful for his amazing kindness. Folks, we, we, we should wake up every morning and sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. Wake up everyone, go to bed at night saying, thank you, God, for the free gift of eternal life you gave me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We need to be eternally grateful to God and order our lives accordingly. 
Um, God's great plan of the ages of restoring the fallen creation back into a right relationship with him. It's centered around Abraham and, and the chosen people of Israel, but in this great plan of God, he allowed us to be grafted in to this wonderful message of salvation by grace through faith. Second thing, what this passage teaches concerning us. Did you catch it there in verse 11? We are to make others jealous by our relationship with God. Verse 11 says, but by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous. You see, the normal Christian life should be lived in such a way God has given us everything we need to experience the fullness of life and joy, to restore us back into that relationship with him, to experience life like God intended it to be made, to, to be lived. And the moment we trust Christ as our personal Savior, we truly are born again. And the normal Christian life is to be lived out with the experience of life, of, of joy and peace and, and, and happiness of, as God designed it. To have a right relationship with Almighty God means life is, is good. It's, it's wonderful and lived in the basking in the warmth of His grace. That's the normal Christian life. And we should be living our life in such a way that others look at that, whether it's Jew here in this situation or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or irreligious person. They look at our life that is in harmony with our Creator and experiencing the joy and the peace that He says He came to give us and say, whatever you've got, I would sure like it. Peter put it this way, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God when he visits Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth, and if the salt has become tasteless, well, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men, but, but you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. It's put on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works. And they glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are to live our life with such compelling evidence of the, of, of the resurrected life, of life, of the work of God, of the character of God lived out in our life, that people look at that and they say, what is it that you have? Because I don't have it. That's the normal Christian experience. That's how God has designed it. So we have to be very, very careful as followers of Jesus Christ who have been born again, washed by the blood of the precious Lamb of God, redeemed by the kindness of God. We have to be very, very careful when we're tempted to cheat on our income tax, when we're tempted to cheat on our spouse, when we're tempted to entertain that juicy little bit of gossip. Laugh at that dirty joke. Share a particular political opinion that can arouse someone's consternation. 
We are to live our life with such compelling testimony that people look and they're moved to jealousy. Well, it may not be overtly noticed, but in the quietness of the, the darkness of their room at night and their soul aches because God has created us with that God vacuum in our soul. And when they have rubbed shoulders with someone in whom that God vacuum has been filled again with God himself, they say, I want it, and I don't have it. One skeptic put it this way, you show me your redeemed life, and I might be inclined to believe in your Redeemer. What does this tell me about God? Behold, the kindness, the severity of God. What does it tell me about me? Man, I need to be eternally grateful. And I need to live my life in such a way, appropriating his power and strength, that I move people to jealousy. Because I've got life, I've got God. A third thing this passage, I think, teaches us, at least it hints at this, this overarching plan, what's really happening in the world, God's unfolding sovereign plan of the ages. The world is moving towards its consummated end, and God is the one who is moving it. In his predetermined plan of the ages, God is bringing us back to the completion and the perfection that he had originally designed. The world is moving towards that conclusion. The promises of God to restore his, his fallen and broken creation back to himself. It's right on track according to his timetable. What he said in Genesis 12, through you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. It's coming. It's coming. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 2. Just a couple of passages. Here's Isaiah chapter 2. Now it will come about in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills. And the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. It's coming. Let me read to you a passage from the very last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, second to the last chapter of the Bible. John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there no longer was any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throng saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, because the first things have passed away. Folks, that's the consummated end. We're moving towards it. It's going to happen. And all these little events that we might get so exercised over that's going on in our world, in our country, 
those are just little pieces that are playing a part of this grand scheme of God, but we are the people of God. We are part of this grand scheme, and it's all because God was kind enough to graft us in to the rich root of the plan of the Abrahamic promise, and he is fulfilling it and bringing it to its consummated end. We are part of something huge, grander than, than just our daily activity of life. And so Paul, or Peter, would write in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on what's coming. Romans 8.25, But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. I'm excited about what's coming down the pike. And I stand amazed, and I'm sure you do too, at the amazing grace and kindness of God that he would allow us to be a part of something that big uh, while we wait eagerly. Let's live properly. Let's leave here today and this week let's go out and make people jealous of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for allowing us the privilege to worship you and to be reminded from your word of your greatness, of your amazing plan for the ages. Being reminded of your faithfulness to a seemingly insignificant country called Israel. Lord, if their rejection brought us such amazing blessings, you've asked us through your servant, the Apostle Paul, what might their acceptance be? But total transformation, life from the dead, a total new heaven, new earth, a new age of your reign forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for your great plan and for allowing us to be a part of it. We praise this, praise you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.